All right, grab your Bibles and open up with me to 2 Kings chapter 20. So we're coming tonight to the end of the life and reign of the great king Hezekiah. And uh, you don't have to read much to the Old Testament to realize that Hezekiah is clearly one of the most significant kings of the Old Testament period. Now, one of the ways you see that is just from the amount of material that's dedicated to Hezekiah. So just in 2 Kings, Hezekiah gets three chapters, chapters 18 through 20. But that's not the, that's not the end of it. In 2 Chronicles, Hezekiah gets four chapters. Chapters 29 through 32 are about Hezekiah. That's not the end of it. Um, he also gets four chapters in the book of Isaiah. So Isaiah um, 30, it's like 35 through 38, 36 through 39, something like that. Four chapters in Isaiah are dedicated to the story of Hezekiah. So you pull all that together and you get 11 chapters of the Old Testament that are just outlining for us the life, the ministry, the experiences, the reign of King Hezekiah. That's a lot of material. And it's not just the volume of material, it's the way that Hezekiah is described that stands out. So there really are only two Old Testament kings that are positively compared to David to the extent that we read with Hezekiah. Only two kings. It's, it's Hezekiah and Josiah. Those are the only two kings that are positively compared to David to this extent. So he is, he is held up in an extremely positive light. And you'll remember in 2 Kings, the way that um, Hezekiah's faith is highlighted is by telling us the things that he got rid of. So 2 Kings wants to highlight the fact that Hezekiah is this king that goes on the warpath against idolatry. Every idolatrous image in the land that he can lay his hands on, he's getting rid of. He's tearing down the high places. And then I mentioned last time, 2 Chronicles comes at it from the other side. And 2 Chronicles wants to show us that he also demonstrated his faith, not just by the things he got rid of, but by the things he instituted. So most of the positive things said about him there highlight the way that he, he restored the temple. He opened up the doors. He cleaned out the junk. He, he sort of recommissioned the priests and the Levites. He restarted the Passover, which had been forgotten for a number of years. So he's starting all of these very good things. Listen to how he's described. This is on the heels of it talking about him reinstituting the Passover. And listen to the results. This is talking about what happens under Hezekiah. However, some men of Asher, of Manasseh, and of Zebulun humbled themselves and came to Jerusalem. The hand of God was also on Judah to give them one heart to do what the king and the princes commanded by the word of the Lord. Now notice some of these phrases. It's under Hezekiah's reign that God works to give the people of Judah one heart. So, so God actually blesses the southern kingdom with a spirit of spiritual unity. That's a remarkable thing if you read the history of Israel. But did you notice what else is happening? You had men who came from Asher, Manasseh, and Zebulun. Now what's striking about that? Those are northern tribes. So the, the northern kingdom, which has now been conquered by the Assyrians, remember, Assyria hauled off a lot of the population, but they would leave some of the population behind to take care of the land and to mix with the people that they moved in. And what we're being told is under the reign of Hezekiah, people from the northern kingdom 
all of a sudden started coming back to Jerusalem for worship. So under his leadership, not only was there a, a spiritual renewal in the southern kingdom, it even bled over into the northern kingdom. So this is a hugely positive thing. And here's how his reign is summarized in Second Chronicles. Thus Hezekiah did throughout all Judah, and he did what was good and right and faithful before the Lord his God. Man, that's a heck of a way to be described, isn't it? He did what was good and right and faithful before the Lord. And every work that he undertook in the service of the house of God and in accordance with the law and the commandments, seeking his God, he did with all his heart and prospered. Man, that's a fantastic summary of a man's life. So he is a good king. But again, he was not a perfect king. So 2 Kings has also shown us Hezekiah's failures. Um, I mentioned this morning that it, it really seems like the Bible sometimes even goes to greater lengths to make sure we see the failures of the good men and women. It's like it wants us to see that even the best people we see in Scripture are still fallen people so that none of them are ultimately going to give us what we're looking for. And the last chapter we get of Hezekiah's life is going to show us another one of those failures. Now, really, there's two sides to it. There are going to be two stories in chapter 20. One story is going to highlight what is so good about Hezekiah. We're going to see um, the strength of Hezekiah's faith in the face of what looks like a very bleak, impossible situation. And then the very next story is going to seem like it is just dripping with pride and, and self-centeredness and self-preservation. So the last chapter is going to show us what made Hezekiah so good and what Hezekiah so often stumbled with. So let's just start reading. Second, Second Kings chapter 20, verse 1. Here's how it begins. In those days, Hezekiah was sick and near death. And Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amoz, went to him and said to him, Thus says the Lord. Set your house in order, for you shall die and not live. Stop for a minute. Notice this first phrase. In those days. It doesn't say after those days. It says in those days. So it's setting the time. This happened around the same time period as chapters 18 and 19. You remember what chapters 18 and 19 were about? Those two chapters were both about the invasion of Assyria into Judah. Well, well, what we see in chapter 20 is this is actually a little bit of a flashback. So we're going back now in chapter 20 to just before Assyria invaded. In fact, you'll notice as we keep reading that one of the promises God's going to make to Hezekiah in this chapter is God's going to promise him that when Assyria does invade, God's going to make sure that Assyria doesn't conquer Jerusalem. So this, this is happening before the Assyrian invasion. So the, the reason we're getting a flashback is you know how lots of times in Kings, when we come to the end of a king's story, he'll start, the narrator will explain how he died, like the very end of his life. Well, with Hezekiah, there's like a long backstory to his death. There's a lot that leads up to the death of Hezekiah. So when we come to chapter 20, the narrator is going to back up a step in order to describe what happens at the end of Hezekiah's life. So what's happening in verse 1 is Hezekiah is sick when Isaiah shows up. And the prophet Isaiah comes into the palace and says, 
get your things in order, you're going to die. Now that's, that's about as blunt as you could say, not the best bedside manner in the world from Isaiah. You're going to die. And you can imagine how this would have hit Hezekiah like a ton of bricks because you can, you can kind of trace out the chronology of Hezekiah's reign. And the best picture is that he was probably somewhere between 35 and 40 years old at this point. So he is still a young king and has been a very, very good king. He has brought reform to the kingdom. He has been faithful to God. He has gotten rid of idolatry. So all that to say, his, his pronouncement of death doesn't seem to be any kind of judgment. It's not like he had committed some grave sin and God's now going to take his life because of, his, of this sin. So, so what's happening? Why is he dying? Well, this, is, this pronouncement of judgment is just one of those uh, mysterious providences of God, I guess is the way to say it. This is just one of those hard providences where God has determined he makes the announcement that he's going to take his life. Now, if you can just back up for a minute, I think if you look at the full picture, you can connect some more dots on what God might be doing with Hezekiah here. Now, this is a little speculation on my part, so hold it that way. But it seems to me what's happening here is, so what's happening is God is going to put Hezekiah in a situation where it seems hopeless. He has this death sentence hanging over his head. It looks like there's no way out so that all Hezekiah can do is just cast himself on God. Just depend wholeheartedly, 100% on God. And I think God is teaching this lesson to Hezekiah now because about a year later, the whole nation of Judah is going to be in that same situation when Assyria invades. So Assyria is going to invade and Judah's going to be under what looks like a death sentence. It's going to look like there's no way out, that their condition is absolutely helpless. And, and what God teaches Hezekiah here, the lesson he learns here, that his only hope is God and that God is enough, is going to also play out in that story. Because what, hap- what does he do when Assyria invades and it look ho- looks hopeless? The same thing. He's going to throw himself on God and depend on the Lord, and the Lord's going to come through. So that's... That's what I think is, is happening here. Okay, but Hezekiah doesn't know that. He just knows that he's been pronounced that he's going to die. So here's how he responds. Pick it up in verse 2. Then he turned his face toward the wall and prayed to the Lord, saying, Remember now, O Lord, I pray, how I've walked before you in truth and with a loyal heart, and have done what was good in your sight. And Hezekiah wept bitterly. So how does Hezekiah respond to this news? He is absolutely crushed by it. He's devastated so that he weeps bitterly and he begins to pour his heart out to God in prayer. This is not, this is not some, uh, some stoic prayer. This is a deeply emotional prayer. It even starts by saying, he turned his face toward the wall. And that seems to be emphasizing that Hezekiah, he gets away from everybody. He's not talking to his friends. He's not looking for help from his counselors. He gets where it's him and the walls of the room. And he begins to pour his heart out to God, desperately asking that God would help him in this prayer. And I, don't, I said prayer. I don't even know that prayer is the, the right word. M- more than praying, this is Hezekiah pleading. He is pleading. He is laying out his case before God. So some, some people read this where Hezekiah says, Lord, I've walked before you in truth 
they take that as this is Hezekiah's pride, like he's tooting his own horn here. But I don't think that's what's happening. If, if you read Psalms, we've, we've come across this sometimes in Psalms, you'll find David sometimes doing this same sort of thing. Whereas king of Israel, David, as he pleads with God, will kind of build his case and say, Lord, I've been faithful and I've tried to lead the people to follow you. That's what Hezekiah is doing. He's trying to build his case with God. Lord, I've been faithful. I've led the people to follow you. Surely it would be for the good of your people for me to stay on the throne. So he's pleading his case with God. Listen to what Jason Helopolis said about pleading with God. He said, pleading with God is that part of prayer in which we argue our case with God. As Isaac Watts wonderfully says, in a fervent yet humble manner. It's not just petition, but well-reasoned petition. It's not just requesting, but passionately appealing. In pleading, we are making our case before God as to why he should grant our prayer request. At first, this can seem awkward or inappropriate, yet we all would readily acknowledge that there's a natural impulse to plead our case. I've never taught my children to do so, but they know how. It is natural to our persons and natural in our relationship with God. He doesn't desire restrained request. God's not looking for dispassionate, catatonic, listless disciples. And what is true of his disciples is also true of their prayers. He desires our passionate pleadings. So, so think of Moses as he pleads with God. Israel has sinned and God has said he's going to destroy Israel. And he pleads with God to spare the nation. Um, or or think, of, think of Abraham. Do you remember where God is going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah? And Abraham begins to plead, Lord, if there are just 50 righteous people, if there are just 30, if there, Lord, if there are just 10 righteous people, will you please save the city? Or think of Hannah when she goes into the temple and it says that she had, uh, how is it worded, bitterness of soul. And she begins to pour her heart out, pleading that God would give her a child. Okay, that's the sort of thing that Hezekiah is doing. He is pleading with God to spare his life. Okay, but God's sovereign, right? God's going to take his life or extend his life as he sees fit. Isn't that true? Yeah, it's true. And God is sovereign. And I love the doctrine of God's sovereignty. And it's absolutely right that God is sovereign. That is the bedrock that we dig our heels in as Christians. But listen to me. If your understanding of God's sovereignty makes you reluctant to pray these sorts of prayers, then you have a misunderstanding of God. Uh, I'll say it a different way. If your understanding of God's sovereignty makes you feel like your prayers don't matter, or if your understanding of God's sovereignty would make you reluctant to plead with God the way Hezekiah is doing here, then you've missed something in the Bible about the full picture of God. Yes, God is absolutely sovereign. And yes, God often works through the prayers of his people to bring about his sovereign will. Our, our prayers matter because God says our prayers matter. Okay, so make sure you hold on to that. You find yourself in one of those situations where you're dealing with uh, one of those hard providences of God. And you're struggling and you're wrestling through it. Pour your heart out to God like this. It is good to plead with God this way. 
You can come to God like Hezekiah and plead your case and pour out your tears with the assurance, not just that God hears, but the picture you get in the Bible is so often God is pleased to work through the prayers of his people. And that's what he does here. Keep reading the story. Verse 4. And it happened before Isaiah had gone out into the middle court that the word of the Lord came to him saying, Return and tell Hezekiah, the leader of my people, Thus says the Lord, the God of your father, I have heard your prayer. I have seen your tears. Surely I will heal you. On the third day you shall go up to the house of the Lord, and I will add to your days 15 years. I will deliver you and this city from the hand of the king of Assyria, and I will defend this city for my own sake and for the sake of my servant David. And then Isaiah said, take a lump of figs. So they took it and laid it on the boil, and he recovered. Do you see how quickly all of this happens? Isaiah comes in and says, get, get your stuff ready. You're about to die. Hezekiah begins to weep before God. And before Isaiah even gets out of the palace complex, God turns him around. When it says, when it says right here that he was in the, the middle court, the middle court was the area between the palace and the temple. So he, he's hardly even gotten out of the palace yet when God turns Isaiah around and sends him back to see Hezekiah. And just the way this starts is wonderfully encouraging. God tells him to tell Isaiah, I have heard your prayer. And even more, I have seen your tears. And isn't that good to read? God was not unmoved by Hezekiah's tears. Make sure you hold on to that too. When we pray, we are not praying uh, to some God who is a, a stoic brick wall in the sky who our prayers just bounce off of. No, the Bible's going to present God as, as having a heart that is inclined toward his people. That he is moved by the tears and by the prayers of his people. It, that, that's meant to encourage us to pray. There's a, an old hymn by John Newton. John Newton, you know, Amazing Grace. and Actually, one of the, the hymns we sung this morning, Let Us Love and Sing and Wonders, an old John Newton hymn. But he has an old hymn about prayer. It's, it's written as an encouragement to God's people to pray. And listen to how he words it. John Newton writes, Come, my soul, thy suit prepare. In other words, thy case prepare. Jesus loves to answer prayer. He himself has bid thee pray, therefore will not say thee nay. Thou art coming to a king, large petitions with thee bring. For his grace and power are such, none can ever ask too much. It's good to read things and sing songs like that. One of my, one of my favorite hymns on prayer is the hymn, Dear Refuge of My Weary Soul. Are you familiar with that hymn? It's a wonderful old hymn that is a call to God's people to pray in our struggles. The whole thing is about prayer, but listen to this one verse. Hast thou not bid me seek thy face, and shall I seek in vain? And can the ear of sovereign grace be deaf when I complain? No, still the ear of sovereign grace attends the mourner's prayer. Oh, may I ever find access to breathe my sorrows there. Listen, listen, Christian. 
the ear of sovereign grace is not deaf to your complaints. You have access to God, and you have access to a God who hears the prayers of his people. So God assures Hezekiah, Isaiah assures Hezekiah on God's behalf that God has heard him, that God has seen his tears, and that God is going to spare his life. And, and God's not just going to spare his life by extending it for a few more weeks or a few more months. How much more time is God going to give him? God is going to give him 15 more years of life. But it even goes beyond that. Did you hear what else God promised him in, in this response? God says, yeah, Assyria is coming. Here soon, Assyria is going to set their sights and they're going to invade Judah. But what does God promise him? When they invade, I will not deliver you. God's not going to deliver Hezekiah, nor is God going to deliver the city of Jerusalem into his hand. Now, do you see what's happening there? Hezekiah hadn't even asked anything about this. So God is now responding to Hezekiah's plea by, by granting him more than he even asked for. This is um, Ephesians 3 in action, right? This is God giving more than he could have asked or imagined. So God is granting not just his request for life, God's granting his request for victory and help against Assyria. Well, you, you know how God often works with miracles. There's often some visible um, tangible element that God attaches to it, like Jesus making the clay and putting it on the blind man's eyes. Or we, we read earlier in 1 Kings where, you remember Elijah when the widow's son is dead and Elijah lays, physically touches his body and lays on top of his body as he prays and God restores life. And that seems to be what ha what's happening here. God attaches this visible, um, tangible thing that they're going to make this poultice, this, he calls it a lump. It's like the word for a paste this paste of figs that they're going to apply to his sores. So apparently with this illness, he's got sores or boils or a rash or maybe some kind of uh, tumorous lump. There's something on his body that they're going to visibly touch. And this is the indicator God is going to heal that and his life's going to be restored. Okay, keep reading. Verse 8. And Hezekiah said to Isaiah, what is the sign that the Lord will heal me? And that I shall go up to the house of the Lord the third day. I should have mentioned this. So part of the promise that God was going to heal him was that the healing was going to come quickly. He was going to be healed within three days. So the promise is three days, this is back to verses four through seven. Three days from now, Hezekiah is going to go to the temple and thank God for the healing. So three days from now, he's going to be healed. So Hezekiah says, what's the sign the Lord will heal me and that I shall go up to the house of the Lord the third day? Then Isaiah said, this is the sign to you from the Lord, that the Lord will, that the Lord will do the thing which he has spoken. Shall the shadow go forward 10 degrees or go backward 10 degrees? And Hezekiah answered, it's an easy thing for the shadow to go down 10 degrees. No, but let the shadow go backward 10 degrees. So Isaiah the prophet cried out to the Lord, and he brought the shadow 10 degrees backward, by which it had gone down on the sundial of Ahaz. Now put yourself in Hezekiah's shoes. Imagine how his mind is spinning. Isaiah had come in and said, get your stuff together, you're going to die. He prays, Isaiah comes back and says, God is going to extend your life by 15 years. And so Hezekiah is saying, am I really, is this going to happen? So he asks God 
to give him an immediate sign that will assure him that this miracle will really happen in the next three days. Now, God doesn't owe him a sign. Being healed is enough of a sign, right? And he's only got to wait 72 hours. But he's asking God for something right away that will confirm to him that he really is going to be healed. And God mercifully grants the sign. In fact, it's even a kind of multiple choice thing that God gives him, where God gives him the option. Okay, Hezekiah, what do you want to happen?